0: Good evening. It's good to see everyone out this evening, and uh, thank you for taking time to take uh, this part of your evening to look at a portion of God's Word with us this night. Uh, we're very excited to see you here, especially to our guests. Thank you for joining us. Uh, if you did not pick up a bulletin on your way in, uh, then my children did not uh, aggressively chase you down enough in the parking lot. They were uh, very much trying to help uh, distribute those, but there is a bulletin, or there is an outline tonight. Uh, that If you would like to follow along with tonight's lesson, you're, you're welcome to do that with me. In fact, I would welcome and encourage you to do so. Mentioning my children, I, I live really in one of two worlds pretty much at all times, uh, and oftentimes those worlds clash together uh, very closely, that being fatherhood and that being the work that I do. And so as a father, I have three young, amazing children who uh, oftentimes, uh, at least the older two, need to be told things multiple times uh, in order for it to really sink in. Uh, And then in my my work world, I am a college professor, and surprisingly, even 18- to 22-year-olds need to be told things multiple times sometimes uh, for things to sink in, and really all of us do at certain points in our lives. But there's a phrase that I hear in both of these spheres of my life, both with my children uh, and with the people that I work with quite regularly, Uh, and that is the phrase, yes, but. Yes, but. You see, when I'm telling my children something like, well, did you hear me when I told you I wanted you to pick up your room? And my five-year-old will say, yes, but you don't understand, Dad. This something came on TV or suddenly we got wrapped up in a game of throw the ball around the house uh, or whatever it might have been. That, that, that but ch- typically triggers uh, some reason why whatever I was asking uh, was not completed. Similarly, at, at work. You know, there will be students who say, you know, I know, um, you know, you said that it was in the syllabus and the late work and all this stuff. And I said, well, did you read the syllabus? Yes, but, right, and there's always something else that comes after that. And this phrase is two words, but I think it has some, some pretty significant implications, at least when we think about how it's used in our spiritual life. And it is used. In fact, we'll see five examples tonight of human beings thinking in this phrase of yes, but. Uh, but let's just quickly break down the phrase itself. And, and really, when you think about these two words, the first is some type, whether it, depending on the context in which it's used, some type of recognition, uh, of understanding, uh, or some degree of acceptance. And so, if a police officer pulls you over uh, and says, uh, You know, were you speeding back there on that, that street? And you say, Yes, but I was only going a few miles over. Well, that's a recognition that you were in fact speeding. You were doing something that you were not supposed to do, and that that understanding is an acknowledgement that you do in fact recognize what is being asked of you or told to you. The comma itself is interesting, uh, and for anybody who's just a a fan or a student of the English language, you know there's a lot of. Uh, Uh, This gets kind of really deep into the academic uh, nerd literature here, but there's a lot of jokes around misplaced commas that you can find and how important commas are, how much they can save lives potentially uh, if you're not uh, using commas correctly. That may be a bit of a stretch sometimes, but a comma quite simply is a pause, right? It's a hesitation, uh, and it's a a cause for us to slow down and maybe think. Uh, In this case, the comma prior to but is the redirection then, perhaps a deviation or a self-deception of sorts, which we'll talk about in just a moment. There's differing thoughts on this, but on a personal level, I would say that much of my own interpretation of a message uh, is weighted heavily on what comes after but. Let me give you an example of that. If you were to, say, apply for a job or apply for an award, uh, in the first sentence of that award, or, or you get a letter perhaps in the mail and it says, thank you so much for applying. We're very excited uh, that you chose to uh, consider us for this award or recognition or a position. But unfortunately, we are uh, going to go with someone else or we're not going to pursue your candidacy or whatever it may be. For most of us, that thank you that came initially doesn't really mean a lot, right? It doesn't have a lot of implication uh, because we fixate on what comes after, what comes after the deviation, the change in the sentence itself. But we mention here, and tonight's focus is really on how we use this phrase, yes, but to deceive ourselves. And I want to give you five ways tonight that humans for thousands of years have been using this idea, this concept of an acknowledgment, a recognition of God's Word, uh, which is the yes, I understand God's Word, I, I, I recognize its authority, but, and this is where our own uh, self-deception sometimes will come in and cause uh, problems for us in our spiritual lives. And so let's just look briefly at, uh, to help really set the stage for what self-deception is and why it's a problem, uh, 1 John, if you will, uh, if you want to follow along in your Bibles, 1 John uh, chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1 reads there, says, if we, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and that truth is not in us. I like the, uh, the quote, I believe it's Plato, uh, who was it originally attributed to? A lot of versions of it have been uh, adopted since, which says, The worst of all deceptions is self-deception. I'm not sure about that, but I do know that deception is an incredibly troubling and concerning thing that we're surrounded by, every single day. If you think about, uh, I saw just uh, the other day, somebody was suing Taco Bell, and the claim was that they were deceiving in their advertisements. And uh, I don't know if you've ever been to Taco Bell, but sometimes the commercials, this person who's suing the company uh, claims that the commercials don't necessarily add up to what you actually get in your, uh, your bag of food when you pay for it. Uh, that's just one of uh, many examples where people feel and people have responded to deceptions around them Yet I feel, and I I am concerned, that much of our own deception, self-deception, things that we tell ourselves, can be just as problematic, at least in our spiritual lives. And so let's look at, tonight, five different ways in which humans, we, ourselves, Christians even at times, will deceive ourselves using the phrase, yes, but... Before we do that, I just want to highlight, too, uh, another verse that really speaks to this concept, but in a more favorable way, which we'll come back to at the end, Uh, and that's from Jesus himself, looking at Matthew 5, verse 37, where he says, But let your yes be yes, and your no, no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. I've always liked that verse. I've always thought it had some really straightforward but profound implications. Uh, Let your yeses be yeses, and your noes be noes. I think too oftentimes, especially in my world, uh, in academics, we get a a bad rap for this. Uh, We can talk our way out of just about anything. And uh, if you ever will read a research article, uh, there's, uh, we found this thing, uh, whatever this thing may be, but here's all the reasons why it may not actually be this thing. Uh, And it's a lot of limitations and a lot of things that we put into our papers, uh, and we put a lot of caveats in it. And Jesus here is saying, let your yes be yes and your no, no, for whatever is more than these. Is from the evil one. So what are the ways then that we deceive ourselves and how can we see these examples uh, in the Bible? Let's look at five of them this evening uh, and then we'll uh, talk about some implications of these in our lives today. I think the first one that's incredibly common, maybe the most common in, in fact in, in Scripture we'll look at here in just a moment, perhaps one of the earliest self uh, forms of self-deceit that we see in the Bible, and that is yes, but it's not that big a deal. Yes, but it's not that big a deal. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, what does this apply to? And there's a lot of ways that you could potentially hear that phrase come up, both in an earthly sense and in a spiritual sense. Uh, But let's look at the first example that I believe really touches on this idea, and it's not too far after your Bible begins in the book of Genesis. So turn with me, if you will. Uh, I won't have all the verses up on the screen tonight, but I will reference them, and I encourage you, if you have a Bible, to join me as we'll read through many of these examples together. Turn with me to Genesis 3, Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Genesis 3, beginning in verse 1. Reads there, now the serpent that was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said you shall not eat, nor shall you touch it lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will surely not die. You know, what's interesting here, in my opinion, about this verse uh, is that this is, in my opinion, the birth of self-deception, but we see where exactly it came from. We, we see where self-deception got its origins, and we hear and we read about the words of the serpent in this case, uh, telling Eve, basically the expression, it's not that big a deal. I've always thought it was interesting. The first sin ever created or ever uh, committed by man was not murder. It wasn't something uh, that we would see on the worst end of sin that we think are are severe or something uh, quite dramatic. It was eating of a fruit. It was a a sin that many of us, humans in in general, would say, this is a minor thing. And I think this is a, a very dangerous thing that we think of sometimes. But we have often, in our society today, built classification systems. Systems that basically allow us to quantify the severity of sin. And this idea that sin is just a little thing, or that there is such a thing as little sin, uh, that's just not biblically supported. At at no point does God say, well, these are the little ones that I'm going to let slide, and these are the big ones that really matter. He he, he is very clear on his position of sin and how he cannot, in fact, interface uh, and or come into contact with sin whatsoever. And so we, we draw and we look at human comparisons, and we draw that, look at the, the usage there of but. I'm going to contrast it here, deviate from human uh, thought processes for a moment, look back in Scripture. Uh, Galatians 5 in particular, I think, addresses this, and, and there's several other passages that we can look at this evening uh, as well. But Galatians 5 in particular is addressing this concept that we have created this system of minor sins and major sins and that one way that we deceive ourselves in our lives is by telling ourselves that that's not a big deal. It's a a little thing. We shouldn't do it, but it's not a big deal. And if it happens one time, that's not a big deal. But if it happens maybe two or three times, then it's a big deal. We have to be very careful about how we deceive ourselves in this way. And God God specifically addresses this in Galatians 5, particularly verses 8 and 9. He says, This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. He says, A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And I think that really is something we need to be aware of, that even just the littlest sins that we allow to exist and manifest themselves in our lives uh, one, they can oftentimes grow into to many uh, sins and, and continue to cause problems in our lives. Uh, but even the existence of what we think of as a little sin is problematic. Let me give you an example. And I think we, we sometimes struggle with this because from an earthly standpoint, we do have classification systems, right? Our, our justice system, if you were to steal uh, a candy bar from a grocery store, uh, versus a million dollars from a bank, you're gonna get a different penalty, more than likely, from the US justice system. Uh, you're going to have a different outcome as a result because we have, in an earthly sense, quantified what are minor offenses and what are major offenses. But if you think about, again, this mentality from God's perspective, uh, and I thought about this just the other day. We were at the grocery store, again, a family of five, and it was a a long particular day, and uh, we finally got out of the grocery store with a cart full of groceries. We had all the kids into the truck, and just as I was getting ready to put the stroller in, I noticed, I forget what exactly it was, but it was something very small, had been stuck underneath the baby the entire time we were in the grocery store, and we had walked out of that grocery store without paying for something that I think probably equated to two or three dollars if we are, are putting it on a price scale. And my own first instinct was, it's just two or three dollars, right? Instinct. But yet we know that if you were to walk away knowing that you did not pay for something, even as minor as some of us may look at that, that's a form of, of sin. That is a minor offense from an earthly standpoint that from a spiritual standpoint can be a a very strong uh, and a very um, negative deception that we tell ourselves. So we have to be careful of these things in our lives. And then that relates to the second self-deception that I think is quite common, Uh, not just in the world, but even among Christians ourselves. We see that this phrase that, yes, but I'm doing it for the right reasons. I remember I took uh, a variety of uh, philosophy classes, particularly when I was an undergrad in college, Uh, And there's all kinds of moral ideas out there and principles out there that um, have varying degrees of justifications based on what the outcomes of something are. Uh, And I remember, uh, in particular, a philosophy professor once uh, challenged our class and said, you know, is stealing, using that example from earlier, is stealing ever right? And initially the question was met with a pretty strong no by the class. And he went down a variety of examples and got to the point that Uh, what if you had to steal in order to provide for your family? And if it was the only way that you were going to be able to feed uh, your children, would it be right? And then every time he added a layer to that example, some of the class would start to sway. Some of the class would start to change their opinion. Some of the class would start to look at the outcomes as opposed to the means by which we reach the outcomes. And I think that's very much a self-deception, a form of earthly thinking that we need to be careful of. And I want to even draw your attention to one much older than any of us, in thousands of years, in fact, uh, in terms of scriptural uh, examples. But turn with me, if you will, the book of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel, in chapter 6. If you look at 2 Samuel, in chapter 6, I'll tell you, this is a particular case uh, that we, my wife and I, and our family, we were visiting a, a, my uh, in-laws' congregation a couple uh, weeks ago, and um, we were listening to uh, and, and had a class on Uzzah. And uh, I've been thinking about Uzzah a lot for about the last month and how much Uzzah relates to a lot of us today, in my opinion. Uh, and so let's read uh, briefly about Uzzah uh, here in 2 Samuel chapter 6. We're just going to read a few verses here Uh, And we can uh, tie in a couple things here after. So chapter 6, starting in verse 1, says, Again, David gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, whose name is called by the name the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. So they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out to the house of Anabab. And which was on the hill, and Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Anabib, drove the new cart, and they brought it out of the house of Anabib, which was on the hill, accompanying the Ark of God, and Ohio went before the ark. Then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments, on fir wood, on harps, on stringed instruments, on tambourines, on sistrums and cymbals. And when they came to the thresh the thresh floor, Uh, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him there for his error, and he died there by the ark of God. And I've been thinking about this example, like I said, for for several weeks, and and there's other passages that we could look to 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 better understand what really happened here, what led up to this, um, but also what happened. But the, the short version is uh, we see that the people of God were not following God's instructions, quite simply. In fact, uh, I saw uh, Sister Christy uh, the other day uh, was carrying the Ark of God for, for a kid's class, uh, and I almost commented that that's not the proper way of carrying uh, the Ark of God because I've been thinking about this for quite some time. Uh, and yet, the, the truth of the matter is here, what I think Uzza was thinking, if we could hit the pause button as that ark is starting to tip off of the the cart. So first of all, that that new cart that was referenced, not scriptural, right? So not something that God had ordained, and thus the reason that they're in this position in the first place. But as Uzzah is watching this ark, getting ready to tip, I think many of us, if we hit the pause button there, would have said, he's doing the right thing. Right? We've got to be very careful with that mindset. The right thing in Uzzah's mind was to not allow the Ark of God to hit the ground, to fall over. What a, a blasphemy that would be. What a shame, what an absolute atrocity that would be to allow that to happen. And so Uzzah does what I imagine many of us may have done if we were in that exact position, which was think that we were doing the right thing, when in reality Uzzah knew that he was not allowed to touch the Ark of God. He had had that commandment. He had been told that before, and he was aware of what would happen as a result. And yet, because he thought he was doing the right thing, he paid a a terrible consequence. And this is, again, something I think that we today suffer with. We suffer with the same mentality, at least. If you think about what humans oftentimes will say today, what 2023 uh, people living in this society will say, if I try to do the right thing, it's all gonna work out. Um, Or we often hear, Uh, The Machiavellianism term of the end will justify the means. And the reality is these are not concepts. These are not biblical concepts that we see supported by Scripture. In fact, if we contrast that with uh, the Word of God, in particular Mark 14, verse 38, he says, Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And, And I think one of the takeaways here from this verse is that while our intentions may be pure or may be positive, oftentimes the flesh in our obedience to God does not always align with that. And so we need to be careful not to deceive ourselves into thinking that purely having good intentions will always create positive outcomes. We need to be very clear about the deception sometimes that we tell ourselves in those moments. The third example that I think still very much relates to our lives today as Christians and relates to our lives in this society uh, is found uh, in uh, well several passages, but we're going to look in the book of Luke here momentarily, and that's the concept. Uh, you don't—it's not a typo up there. I left it blank for for a reason, but uh, at least it's better than. And I, you can fill in the blank with any comparison you've ever made in your life, uh, and I think we're all probably guilty of this at some point. Um, I know I have done this myself, driving into this particular uh, building before, where I'll drive in and say, hmm doesn't seem like uh, a lot of people are down the church at this congregation or at this church on a Sunday morning or Sunday afternoon. Why, why, why would I ever feel the need to compare uh, ourselves, uh, tr- Christians here, with uh, others uh, in the world? And, and I think that's just a human tendency that we have, and I worry that it's also a Christian tendency that we have. In fact, uh, Jesus talks about this specifically in uh, the, chap- the book of Luke. So turn with me, if you will, to Luke chapter 18. Brother Shannon was mentioning this this morning, in fact, uh, looking at uh, Luke chapter 18, uh, verse 9, starting in verse 9, rather, uh, where we'll read, Oops, sorry, I was in the wrong chapter. Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 9, reading about the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. We'll read verses 9 through 14. It says, "'Also he spoke the parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others.' Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I possess, and the tax collector, standing afar off, would not be so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner." I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And again, I think the modern way that we see this today is expressions like, I'm not perfect, but, again, that, that key word coming up again, I'm not perfect, but compared to so-and-so, or fill in a, a particular group of people, or a set of behaviors, whatever we may find to compare ourselves with in an earthly sense, I'm doing pretty good. And again, I think there's a, a human tendency of that. I see this quite a bit, uh, again, in my work, where students will want to compare themselves with each other. And uh, it is a, a tale as old as time, and I don't know that it'll ever go away necessarily, Uh, But I tell them, well, how did you do compared to the rubric that I gave you, that I told you I would assess you on before you completed the assignment? Well, I didn't do this or I didn't do that, but I did better than so-and-so. Well, so-and-so's grade is between me and them, and uh, your grade is between me and you. Uh, And that always seems to frustrate them at times. But it's not a, a grading system based on social comparison. It's a grade based on how we perform and what we do Uh, in in terms of what we're instructed to do. And again, God shows this. God tells us this on multiple occasions. Another example comes from the book of Romans uh, chapter 14. In uh, the book of Romans chapter 14, it reads, who are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. And I think, again, one of the takeaways here is we need to be very, very careful about deceiving ourselves into thinking that we are somehow doing a righteous thing or a good thing simply because it is in some way different or better than what we compare ourselves to in this world our fourth self-deception of the evening this is one that i think again uh incredibly relevant for uh those of us living in in today's age and today's society uh, but it's that no one will be no one will know or be hurt yes but no one will know or be hurt And just to clarify, I think all of these are are related, of course, to to individuals who commit sin, but I think there's also ways of looking at this that are not necessarily even sinful, just things that we're not doing that God commands us to do in Scripture that we should or could be doing. Uh, And so I will try to share a couple of examples as we go along with this one as well, but we'll start in the book of Acts. If you'll turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 5, Acts chapter 5 and we'll look at the example of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, picking up there in verse 1. We'll read down through verse 11. It says, but a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira his wife sold a possession, and he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it to the apostles' feet. Let me hit a pause button right there for a second. If we were to travel ourselves back in time and and, and eavesdrop on the conversation that happens between husband and wife in that moment. I don't know the exact words that were said, nor are we given uh, those words in Scripture between the husband and the wife and how they um, talked about this, how they thought about this, how they rationalized this, but I suspect an idea similar to no one's ever going to know came up. And we're going to see a reference to that Uh, here in just a moment. But I I imagine that we see that very idea being communicated in some form here between Ananias and Sapphira, and and that's, I think, part of the reason why we'll see the outcomes that we see. So going on then into verse 3, it says, "'But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land of yourself?' While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. I want to once again hit the pause before we finish this passage here. Multiple times in those key passages, those key uh, references, you hear your heart, right? You, you hear and, and see the reference to self-deception. You were you lying to yourself. Not only are you lying to men, you're lying to God And those lies are coming from yourself, uh, and that you've begun to really embrace those lies uh, as you stand before God now. And so it says, "'Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon him and all those who heard these things. And the young men arose and wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her, "'Tell me whether you sold the land for so much.' She said, "'Yes, for so much.' Then Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all those who heard these things. Again, we we are not told and we do not read specifically what is said between Ananias and Sapphira. We do know that both were aware, and we do know that both had agreed to, to move forward with the plan that they had put in place. And yet, I suspect the prevailing thought, and up till the time in which they are confronted there by Peter, the prevailing thought is no one's going to know, and no one's going to be hurt by this. This is something that we are doing for ourselves, and uh, that is the only thing... In, that, in their hearts that mattered, and yet they were going to give part of the proceeds to God and uh, um, deceive both themselves and others uh, with the outcome that really was ultimately bound to happen. And again, when we think about what the modern parallel time or modern parallel to this is, I draw your attention to phrases like me time. I hear that a lot. Uh, we we need I need my me time and I'm not really sure what that is. Maybe it's cuz I'm a father of three young kids and there is no me time when you're a father of three kids and you're always always on the clock. There's a, a commercial that I find quite enjoyable. I think it's a uh, Robitussin commercial where the dad comes in, he says, hey, I'm going to need a sick day tomorrow, and he's telling the baby in the, uh, the uh, um, crib, and uh, I've joked with my kids and my wife before that uh, I'm going to take a sick day from being a dad, but the reality is this idea of me time, this idea of it's, it's on, if it's on my time, then it doesn't matter what it does to others or the effects that it has. Uh, again, I think that's very much an earthly point of view, and we don't see that concept We don't see your own time that you can do whatever you want uh, without any consequence found in the Bible or in Scripture. In fact, if we once again interject with our our use of the word but here and we look at what God does teach us and what He does tell us, He says, uh, And there is no creature hidden from His sight, but all things are naked and open to Him, and the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. uh, Found there in the book of Hebrews chapter 4. The last one, and I am going to conclude with this, and there's a few closing thoughts I'd like to share related to it, but the last self-deception tonight that I want to introduce and encourage us all to really think about and to really ponder with the time that we have both this evening and the time that we have in our lives here on this earth is that yes, but I have plenty of time. I have plenty of time. I think this is one that, again, some of us are impacted by more than others, this way of thinking, this this concerning self-deception that we tell ourselves at times, Um, but it's again a scriptural concept as well, one that we see, uh, again, humans having uh, battled with now for thousands of years, and and Jesus once again talks about this in the book of Luke. So if you turn with me uh, to Luke chapter 12 this time, look with me to Luke chapter 12, Many of us are familiar, of course, with this parable, uh, but the parable of the rich fool found uh, starting in verse 13 of Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 13, it reads there. Then one from the crowd said to him, "Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me." But he said to him, "Man who made me a judge, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he said to them, "Take heed and beware of covetedness." For one's life does not consist of the abundance of things he possesses. Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentiful. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will store all my crops and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then those who will those, who will those things be which you have provided. So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God? This one is, is hard uh, for a lot of us, um, and myself included. I, I remember incredibly clear uh, and incredibly well the night that I lost a a really good friend at the age of 16. And many in this room can relate to losing somebody at a a very young age and uh, coming very unexpectedly or surprisingly. And this is a a good friend of mine that I think about often uh, and how much of his life he thought and we all thought he had ahead of him. And I think, again, this is something that uh, we're all exposed to, we all experience on a regular basis, and I think humans in general— and even some Christians oftentimes will subscribe to the belief that uh, I'll have a certain age in my mind that I'll live to. And uh, maybe it's a range, less than it is just a specific age, but I'll, I'll target that as the goal and then I'll prioritize certain things along the way. And maybe as I get a little older, as I get a little further uh, in my spiritual journey, then I'll really be able to, to commit to uh, spiritual matters and, and really follow the Bible as closely as I would like. But, but at a certain age, I'm going to be able to do my own thing and, and, and really have that time later on for me to, to get serious with my relationship with God. But once again, just like we have for this entire lesson, we see that God has other plans, and God has other instructions for us. In fact, uh, in the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, he, uh, he, through Scripture, through divine Spirit, reads to us here, for man, who does, for man also does not know his time, like fish taken in a cruel net, like birds caught in a snare. So the sons of men are snared in an evil time. And when it falls suddenly upon them, and book again uh, found in the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 12. And, and so when we think about these five ways that we deceive ourselves, whether it be that trivializing sin, maybe we just dismiss it as not that big of a deal. Uh, It's just something that may be minor and ultimately uh, will not matter much in the grand scheme of things. Be very careful, brothers and sisters. I think that's a a dangerous self-deception that some of us uh, have told ourselves in the past and that many of us uh, are suspect to uh, unless we're careful of. We may be telling ourselves that we're doing things for the right reasons, and that's going to ultimately justify whatever behaviors or actions are needed to reach an outcome that we think we're, we're striving toward or that we're uh, uh, aspiring to. We may be doing things because we think we're at least better than someone else, or it's better looking, or it's uh, the appearance or whatever it is of, of our acts are and somehow comparably better to people that we see around us. We need to, once again, be incredibly, incredibly careful about those ways of thinking we may be telling ourselves, what's the harm? What's the harm, at least to other people? It's just me, Uh, it's not affecting anybody, whatever the the sin that is in my life or whatever it is that I'm not willing to commit to God that he's asked me to commit, what's the harm? Because it's just uh, something that is not um, causing any kind of problems to other people, it's not hurting anyone, Um, and so I'm gonna uh, continue to deceive myself into thinking that it's an appropriate thing for me to do uh, or for me not to do, depending on what that action might be. Or maybe you're telling yourself, it's something I've got time to address. I'll, I'll deal with it at a later point, or I'll uh, really get serious about something as I get older in my life. Uh, as somebody who has seen uh, far too many people uh, pass away that we're not expecting it to, and, and we're not expecting those things to happen, uh, and I know others in this room can certainly relate, uh, we know that that's just never a, a promise. It's never a guarantee. And so, as we conclude, and as we wind down our conversations about these self-deceptions, I want to end on a much more positive note, um, because you see, Jesus himself used this expression, right? a slightly modified version of this expression, but one that I think really profoundly tells us where and how uh, we are to move forward in our lives. And so, I encourage you, if you will, join me back in the, Luke, uh, the, the book of Luke one more time, uh, beginning in chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. As we know, our Savior and Christ experienced things as we experienced them, uh, felt things in the way that we felt them, and I'm sure He had the inclination to to say a couple yes buts. I think what we see here in chapter 22 is the closest thing He came to it, and He tells you exactly how to frame your own yes, but. Uh, And so we'll we'll conclude with this. Beginning in chapter 22, uh, look with me at verse 41 and 42. It says, And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Notice the divergence there. Notice the deviation there because right? we, we introduce this concept in saying that the deviation is where we oftentimes interject ourselves back into whatever context or situation we're talking in at that point. But Jesus does something here that I think is very profound. He says up front, I understand my own earthly, fleshly desires, which is I don't want to go to that cross. That cross is going to cause pain and anguish unlike anyone had ever experienced and anyone in this room has ever experienced and yet he said, but not my will. He's saying intentionally that selfishness, that own doubt, that own self-deception that is lurking in all of our hearts. He's saying, but not that will, only yours be done. And I think that brings us to a a conclusion tonight, and I offer you this as that concluding remark. It's yes, but Jesus is the, the conclusion of this sermon, the conclusion of this talk tonight, um, because I think we can go into the world this week, we can go into our lives, and we'll experience things, and we'll hear things, and we'll be having conversations about things where, from an earthly point of view, we may very well understand what it is that the people of this earth and the people of this world are telling us. Uh, You know, it doesn't really matter where you go to church. It doesn't really matter how often you go. Uh, that's, That's just something that people believe. Yes, I understand that might be your point of view, but Jesus has made it very clear to me where I should be and what I should be doing. Uh, it doesn't really matter how you act or what words you say in school or work. That's just overblown. You know, you say what you want. Um, it's a free country. We have freedom of speech. We love that, that concept in this, in this particular country, in this particular time. Yes, I understand we have freedom of speech. That is something that is part of our, our country and our society today. But Jesus has instructed me that I do not have freedom of speech. I don't just get to say whatever I want or whatever I think. It's uh, something that I should be very conscious about and something I should allow uh, Scripture to tell me what I should be saying and what I shouldn't be saying. And why do I feel this is most important? What is the the ultimate conclusion or takeaway? My greatest fear in life, and for all of us, is that we will get to that day of judgment, and uh, we will be asked, did you know my son? Did you know Jesus? And God may say, did you follow scripture? Did you, did you do what I asked you to do in my word? And I think the most terrifying yes, but we'll ever give is in that moment. Yes, I knew him, but I didn't follow him. Yes, I understood your word, but I followed my own desires instead. That yes, but will be the horrible, most, most concerning yes, but we've ever uttered in our lives. And yet, if we're not careful, the yes buts that we're using on this earth today will lead us to that conclusion. And so if you are subject tonight, I encourage you to think about the yes buts in your life. The yeses, I'm following Jesus. Yes, I know the scripture, but there may be something that is preventing me from ultimately living the way he wants me to live. It's an opportunity tonight to, to wash yourself clean of that. If you are not yet a Christian, you are, are the, the waters of baptism are open to you if you are are willing to come forward, if you are willing to confess him as your savior, if you're willing to repent of your sins, that is an opportunity that is available to everybody. And the yes, but there is that yes, you are a sinner. Yes, we are all sinners. But Jesus has washed us clean of those sins. Jesus has has served as our mediator in the, the relationship that we now are able to call on with God because of the sacrifice that he made. And so take advantage of that yes, but. Take advantage of Jesus and what he did for us. If you're subject to the call tonight, let it be known as we stand and as we sing.